Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by Nick Conklin from Temple Fork Outfitters. Nick shares his fly fishing journey, gives us a peek behind the curtain at TFO, and shares the detail of two new rods TFO is releasing soon. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. Shout out to this episode's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Artisan Angler. If you're looking for a better way to organize your flies, tippet, and tools, you should check out the fly trap at artisananglerllc.com. I've dropped the link in the show notes. They sell direct through Amazon, so you get prime shipping and free returns. It doesn't get any easier than that. Make your time on the water more productive and check out the fly trap today. And we've received several listener questions asking about the best way to support the show. In addition to subscribing in the podcast of your choice and leaving us a review, you can also support the show by using our affiliate link when you shop on Amazon. It doesn't cost you a thing, and we receive a small commission on your purchases. You can also become a Patreon patron and make a single or a recurring donation. Links to both of these options are in the show notes. There wouldn't be a show without listeners like you, and we appreciate your support more than you know. Now, on to the interview. Well, Nick, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Uh, thank you, sir. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. We like to ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Oh, happy to. I mean, I, like I said, I feel like we should be sitting around a show and having a cocktail and talking about the end of the day. But we can talk about uh, some fishing memories. Oh, so first fishing memory for me was probably the first time I could stand up and walk down to the end of the dock and not uh, either fall in the water or hook any of my siblings. Um, so I grew up in Michigan. Just a quick, uh, a little quick background. Grew up fishing, uh, was raised on a little 70 acre plus private lake in northern Michigan. Uh, so spent all my summers up there and from the first time I could, uh, again, stand up and not hook anybody and pressed down on a push button Snoopy pole. I was, uh, I was fishing, um, in Northern Michigan Lake. So largemouth bass, pan, all kinds of panfish, pike, a little bit of walleye. Um, then walk across the street was the South branch of the Pier Marquette river for, for any listeners out there that are familiar with the PM. Um, I was pretty privileged if you want to say it that way to, uh, fish that river and grow up, uh, grow up in that lifestyle. So, a lot of good memories fishing that way. Yeah. And so that means you were really, I guess, like North central kind of Northeastern. Uh, so you were like maybe the ring finger and the pinky finger, the mitten. Yeah. Closer to the pinky again. Uh, Baldwin was, a, was a lovely, uh, lovely big town. I spent most of my summers in, I grew up down kind of more Western Michigan and Grand Rapids, which not much different. You could go, you know, 10 minutes in any direction and find some good fishable water, but spent my summers up North and, Got to lake fish and small stream fish. And then when I got a little bit older, I could uh, get dropped off down on the, the main branch of the Pier Marquette and learn to conventional tackle, but also fly fish that way. So a lot of good opportunities. Yeah. And so when did you exactly come to the dark side of fly fishing? Oh, the dark side, the lovely side. I would say I was about eight years old is when I got serious. And I'm I'm doing an air quote, I'm serious. <laughs> You know, obviously at the time I thought I was, I was serious. You know, one of the cool things about this sport, right, is 
matter how old you are, how much experience you have, you can always grow, you can always adapt and learn new things. Um, but I would say I was about eight years old is when I really got uh, got serious about it and had a neighbor up at the lake that had some VHS tapes and, and a lot of books. And we'll uh, we'll do a pause for everyone that needs to Google VHS tapes, what that means. <laughs> but uh, watched a lot of tapes and read a lot of books, you know, at that time folks like Lefty and Ed and Bob Clauser and Flip and everyone was writing books. And that's how you learn to cast a fly rod, looking at old black and white pictures and VHS tape. So I got, again, what I say, I got serious about it then and borrowed my grandfather's rod and stood on the dock for hours and hours. And both my dad and my grandpa gave me casting tips and I'd run back inside and reread this book, whatever pages was, or, you know, replay this VHS tape and just tried to learn it that way. And that's kind of how I got started. Yeah, that's neat. It's kind of funny too. I've talked about this with other guests. Um, Fish TV, uh, their fly fishing channel, they have a ton of those old VHS tapes with like Lefty and Bob. And um, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Popovics is on there and it's kind of cool to see those yeah. things, you know, particularly after you've known these guys. Uh, in the industry, but it's super neat um, to go back and watch those old tapes. I'm glad people kept those as well as like the, uh, like the ones that um, I can't remember the name of the company, the ones that did the ones with Kelly Gallup and Davey Watton and all those guys too. Oh, all those guys that were, I mean, that was, that was at least in my eyes, that's how you learned how to fly fish and watching some of the old Walker's K Chronicles tapes. Like that's how I learned to cast, or at least in my eyes, how I learned to cast a fly rod outside of some, outside advice, you know? Um, but it was, that was the resource at the time, right? You read books and you watch videotapes and you just kind of figured it out on your own. So, yeah, it's interesting. And so, you know, you're, you're, you, you had, uh, books and VHS tapes and your dad and your grandfather, who are some other folks that have mentored you on your journey and what have they taught you? I was outside of the growing up where I grew up. I was pretty lucky to have some parents that were very supportive of my fishing and just outdoors career. Um, they never put a ton of restrictions on me outside of just, you have to be serious about school. Um, there's a funny story we can talk about later about, uh, me wanting to move to the little, uh, town near my cottage to be a fishing guide and kind of be a bum, but, uh, they didn't let me do that. They made me stick in, you know, stick in school and stay in the city. Um, so early on, again, reading books and watching tape, again, Lefty Cray, Bob Clouser, people like Flip, um, you know, then I started to really post eight, you know, post eight years old, nine years old, got really into some of the, what I'd call a, the captain mentalist folks, you know, Ed Jabrowski and some of those people that really would break down a cap and fixate on, all right, your rod tip's doing this, your hand's doing this, your body's doing this, you know, what's, what's the end result, so really really dove into some of those mentors i say obviously as i've i've worked more into tfo and gotten into the industry there's a whole uh, whole grocery list of folks that have helped me evolve my not only rod knowledge and casting knowledge just general fishing industry knowledge so a lot of a lot of family sport and just a lot of i don't know let's call it good luck and good timing just to land in michigan where i did and eventually land down here in texas so yeah, if you could do the uh, do the summers in Michigan and the and the winters in Texas, it'd be pretty good, right? Oh, absolutely. And that's that, that was my goal when I was a small child. And that, I mean, I'm only in my mid thirties now, but that's still my still my life's ambition. <laughs> and my uh, summers up north, and you know, the rest of the year down in the south. So 
Yeah. And so you were, you were lucky, right. To grow up in Michigan where you have a lot of different kind of fishing opportunities. What's your favorite species of fish to chase on the fly? Oh, that's a loaded question and a wonderful question to ask. Um, so I still have a soft spot in my heart for brown trout and uh, steelhead. Messed up a lot of good fishing opportunities growing up on the Pier Marquette with uh, wonderful steelhead, wonderful browns, good rainbows, and you know hot uh, salmon coming out of Lake Michigan. I've shifted a little bit uh, last couple of years, starting to focus a little bit more on the saltwater pursuits. Um, fascinated by sharks these days. I don't know what it is. I think they're a great animal and a good pursuit, not just on fly, but on conventional gear. Um, got some, some tuna on my mind here soon. And pretty much, I mean, it's, I know that sounds like a, a weird answer, but pretty much anything. Um, we have some killer striped bass lakes here around the Dallas Fort Worth area that are a lot of fun to fish, especially on a fly rod. So pretty much anything that comes up. To put it, <laughs> to put it simply. <laughs> uh, there you go. And, you know, folks may not know this, but uh, you're a bit of a spay rod nut. When did you uh, get into fishing spay rods? Oh, I, a nut, a nut is putting it nicely. Um, so I picked up a two-handed rod, a longer rod, probably later in my high school days. Um, again, we were fishing in Michigan and just trying to figure out a more efficient way to deliver a big heavy sink tip and a big fly. Um, and at that time... You know, this was early 2000s, right? So not too long ago, but the line and tip technology wasn't quite there. At least we didn't know about it, right? We were doing everything the hard way. Um, you know, we had old wind cutter lines, which 50 plus feet. We were chopping up sink tip trolling lines. We had some lead core lines we used to fish uh, like Michigan with for salmon, right? So we were just chopping up lines and putting loops on it and just trying to figure out and fishing long 14 foot. At the, at the time, they called them nine-weight lines. So we were, you know, nine-weight rods, excuse me. So 600-plus grains, really just aggressive, obtrusive stuff that we were just trying to figure out. So I, I started there. Um, I had two good friends. Um, one's gone on to be a pretty uh, prolific guide, both in Michigan and Colorado. The other friend's gone on to uh, run a successful uh, mobile hunting, archery-type business. But both of those guys kind of got me into it. For whatever reason, um, the efficiency, the able, the ability to reposition line and just fish heavier flies, get down in the water column, just appealed to me. So I kind of took it, took from there, and um, when I went to uh, moved on to TFO, that kind of opened up a whole other world of uh, of, of opportunities in the in the two handed realm. Yeah, you're the, you're their resident uh, two handed rock propeller head, right? <sighs> I was, I, I guess I still am. I was at the time, but you know, it was one of those things you, you walk into the, to the NBA locker room and everyone's got a lot of experience and a lot of skills and it's kind of like, well, what can I do? That's uh, going to set me apart and make me uh, make me an asset and make me useful here. So gravitated more towards that. And as I've, as I've gone on and it just again was an opportunity to, to be involved and to contribute to the, to the team. Yeah, I think the interesting thing too about um about spay casting is that I think a lot of anglers think you have to fish a switch rod or you have to fish a two-handed rod and you know, you should really, you know, let folks kind of get a feel for, you know, how you can basically take your 9-foot 5 weight and use spay techniques and really have a much better day on the water. 
Well, absolutely. And you can, you could even step back and stop calling it a spake, stop calling it a switch. Cause a lot of that just confuses people. And for whatever reason, the fishing industry, the fly fishing industry just likes to try to make shit difficult for people. Um, call it a single handed rod, call it a two handed rod, call it a spay rod. The idea, more efficient tool, more efficient lever to pick up and re- reposition line. So a lot of things that translate that correlate from your single hand casting to your two hand casting. So it's not as daunting as it should be. Unfortunately, it kind of gets that way and people, uh, people look at it oddly. Um, I was lucky enough to get some casting opportunities this spring at the fly fishing shows and some other smaller regional shows. And my whole point of the conversation was all the principles translate. You could break it down to some simple ideas so whether you've picked up a two-handed rod before, fished it a lot, or you're just brand new to the idea, there's a way to make the whole process more efficient, a little bit easier, hopefully more enjoyable, right? That's the point of the sport is to have fun and enjoy it. So, Yeah. I try to tell people it's kind of like, it's like, you know, there's more than one kind of D loop, right? And so once you kind of get that concept, hmm. it kind of opens up the world for you. Yeah, it should open up the world and it's not all black and white and the plane's going to change and a lot of things are going to change in the cast, but can you effectively and efficiently pick up the line, reposition the fly and again, spend more time with the fly in the water, which should ultimately be the goal, right? (laughs) (laughs) There might be a slight positive correlation to catching more fish. Yeah. That's, that's the idea at least. So (laughs) get rid of the, the mystique and all the confusion of terminology and grain weights and line weights and rod lengths and, everything else so yeah and it's funny too because i mean you know if folks don't know that you're a, a two-handed or we'll just say a spay well i don't even know we can't even what we should say fanatic um well, we'll, we'll call it two-handed right Let's two-handed fair enough and so <laughs> so we if so if we uh if we go with that but folks may not know that kind of before you got into the fishing game kind of professionally uh you were a journalist and an outdoor writer and i was really you know kind of curious you know where your love of storytelling and writing came from well, absolutely. So that was my that was my path uh, since I was in fourth grade. Again, putting some dates and some ages on it, but that was uh, that was what I felt uh, was the right path for me. I read Ernest Hemingway's The Nick Adams Stories, specifically the Big Two Hearted River story he wrote within that. Which you know, there's some debate on whether it was the Lower Peninsula or Upper Peninsula, but that's you know that's for your Michigan specific listeners. Um, and that was really the story I read that said, all right, you're meant to be either a writer or some, somehow in the fishing industry, can you figure out how to merge both? Uh, so really, since that time, I was uh, fixated and interested in writing. Um, that's what I went to college for and got a journalism degree and tried to uh, to work my way up in you know, very regional and local newspapers and was lucky enough to get some freelance gig in national newspapers and some magazines. And that's eventually how I found my way down to Texas here. So, yeah, it's neat. It's funny. Cause I've got a copy of it. That's got all of the Nick Adams stories, but they're in chronological order. Um, so it's kind of Ooh, a kick what? to, yeah, okay. it's kind of a kick to read them in order and, you know, uh, hear about Petoskey and all the whole nine yards. So. Yeah. And that was just, just a lot of, stories that resonated well with me again growing up in that that part of michigan and 
at the time trying to understand the best I could about what he was writing about. And, you know, you, you have other folks, Jim Harrison would write about Michigan and it was a environment writ opportunity to, to, to be into the fishing space and be into reading at the time. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of great books being written and it's great to stumble across them. Yeah. And so anybody else in addition to Harrison and, and Hemingway that kind of, you know, influenced you or you still follow today? Oh, absolutely. So a lot of, still a lot of Hemingway and I, I still think the nuns to this day, if they're still around, will doubt that I actually read that when I was in fourth and fifth grade. Um, I pulled some of those books out, you know, the old man in the sea and they just stared at me like, you're not reading this. You're how many years old? You can't comprehend this, these type of books. Um, so a lot of those kind of more traditional authors, um, I'm, I'm still a, voracious reader when it comes to Florida fiction. You know, you get people like Carl Hyacin, Tim Dorsey, um, Randy Wayne White's a great one. That's a good crossover, not just fiction, but also fishing-related author. Um, so still very into those books, reading a lot more about the expansion of the West and different things, but I, uh, I try to maintain a pretty robust fishing and fly fishing-specific library. I was... Uh, buying a bunch of used books the other day during the independent bookstore day and just trying to build that type of library and remind people that's an important thing to, to, to remember and to cherish. So, yeah, it's funny you say that there's a family owned bookstore in my hometown and they, you know, not only do they have new books, but they have a massive used and collectible book section. And every time I go home, I have to hit that to see what I can pick up. Yeah, I mean, it's a hard thing not to go spend a, spend some money and just, you know, you pick up a book. I picked up one from original pressing from 1948, and then I found a, a surf fishing book from the late 70s. So, I mean, that's, that's still a fun thing to get into. Um, love the fishing books, but still uh, still try to read as much as I can. Just, just random fiction, right? Florida fiction, just mystery things, things like that. So Yeah. Yeah, that's neat. And so I'm really kind of curious to always like to ask uh, writers uh, that, that, you know, wrote for newspapers or magazines, you know, if you remember the first piece that you got paid for and how it made you feel. I remember the first piece I got paid for that I felt really good about. <laughs> that <answered> the question. <laughs> um, so I was, you know, working my way through high school and into college, just went to a little, little tiny school up in northern Michigan. So I worked for some, some local newspapers and, you know. I did a uh, small beats and things like that. The first dramatic, you know, earth shaking. I've made it. I'm something, which, you know, years later now you're like, yeah, I'm glad they just paid me money and gave me an opportunity. Um, was feeling stream. So uh, I was at the time, and this may have changed. I'll have to double check with the editor. If he's still there. I was at the time, the, the youngest writer to been published in field stream magazine. It was about 21, 22. Um, and it was a, I mean, it was a several week process. It wasn't something that, oh, I wrote the article and, and here's the check. It was a very generous check. It's wonderful at the time. Granted, I was still in college, so any check, any money was, uh, was great. Um, but it was just a, a very proud moment. And I had some, I had two close friends that, uh, were very happy for me and wanted to celebrate. And we went to this little local bar in Michigan and, you know, it's a sportsman's bar, right? So there's mounted fish and there's rods and reels and oars on the wall. And there's a bunch of old copies of the old train magazine, right? 
from the 50s and 60s just framed and you know they felt the need to grab one for me in, in honor and i'm saying this hoping that the statute of limitations has run out on that but uh it was a very proud moment it was very proud i was very happy to have some some close friends to celebrate the uh the the first field of stream article so turned into a an okay career after that i was able to write a little bit more for them wrote for the drake and some other outdoor specific newspapers and magazines but that was that was probably the best moment um when that one was published and again i'm sitting in my office here in dallas and it it is framed right behind me so every time there's a zoom call or a meeting i get to uh see that in the background so yeah that's pretty cool good memory for sure yeah and so tell me a little bit about how you found your way to tfo and what attracted you to the company yeah so it was a kind of a roundabout story. So I was wrapping up my college days up at Central Michigan and was trying to write and figure out that career path. And it was uh, it was a little bit bleak, to be honest with you. You know, when you're in college and doing some other things, a paycheck every couple months isn't too bad. But as an adult that's got to pay bills and work his way through life, uh, it wasn't great. So I started... Uh, looking around at fishing industry specific companies um i'd done some work in texas worked for a great boss david sams who ran lone star outdoor news i worked for them for a couple summers as an intern came back to michigan continued to work for them and you know i did my uh my second round of junior years just because i enjoyed it so much and i was graduating finally and had to uh had to figure out something to do Again, I knew the uh, journalism path would be difficult. So I just started applying and sending out resumes and information to a couple outdoor-specific companies, mainly manufacturers. Um, and Rick Pope, the founder and president of TFO at the time, was one of the very, very few that ever responded and just uh, kept the communication line open and said, hey, if you ever get your way back to Texas, because I kind of shared with him, you know, I enjoyed my time in Texas. Liked working for the newspapers down there. I would like to come, like to come back. Um, I'm tired of Michigan winters. Don't like the snow and the cold. Texas seems like an opportunity rich place. Let's see what's happening. So he was kind enough to just keep that com- conversation going. Um, I moved down. I was working for the Fort Worth Star Telegram, working nights on the sports desk and getting yelled at by all the uh, moms of football players that uh, thought their stats were better than they were. And I was doing that at nights and I went over to TFO and did an interview one day and met with all the partners, which were a lot of working partners at the time and spent about eight hours there and, you know, went to lunch and went to dinner and eventually got brought on and Rick hired me. And then they all took off to Brazil for a couple of weeks. So I was left to, kind of figure it out on my own so <laughs> yeah it was a it was an interesting journey but again i you know, i kind of gave it my best shot and moved to texas which will be almost 12 years ago now with a suitcase and a backpack so it was a it was a committed uh process yeah that's pretty neat because that was back in the days like in the original facility which was near restaurant row right yep over by love field there and I, uh, again, I, I sold pretty much everything I had. So I was taking the bus and the train at that time. And I bust over to love field, my little white shirt and black tie and 
did a did an interview and sat there for a couple hours and talked to everybody and it was it uh, obviously turned out to a, to be a wonderful deal but it was a uh, definitely a leap of leap of faith on their part you know I'm some Yankee guy that they've never heard of and they they took a chance for sure but I I think it's paid off <laughs> yeah it's neat and I think the amazing thing too is you were a ton of hats at TFO and. You know, I thought you could share with our listeners, because if you go to your LinkedIn profile, I mean, I think you've got like six things that you've done in the past that are still continuing to today. You want to kind of let folks know all the things you're in charge of at the company? Oh, I just try to put pieces together. But yes, I'm in I'm in charge of a lot of things. And, you know, I, I was thinking about it earlier. I, was, yep. I started working in the warehouse, packing boxes, working on warranties and have moved up since then. Um, my current title is the fly fishing product category manager we'll handle all of our product design development get to work with all of our dealers advisors you know again people like blaine chocolate jason randall flip palette all the folks you've already had on um also work with all of our fly fishing sales reps we have 12 currently around the country work with our international dealers and distributors that's definitely growing uh growing market for us and i run all of our trade shows and events so i spend a lot of time on the road talking to dealers talking to consumers building show booths and just trying to get the brand message out there yeah and you're still the two-handed guy yep and still you know single-handed rods two-handed rods uh two-handed rods obviously are still a passion um still a way i love to fish and i was just down on the coast doing some two-handed overhead casting in the surf uh not too much luck but still uh still enjoy that type of casting so if it's a fly rod or fly reel or accessory at tfo i'm usually the one trying to put the pieces together and figure out the way to uh to make it a little bit more enjoyable for uh for the angler yeah that's neat and so what's your favorite part of working at the company favorite part is just the enjoyment people get out of the sport um Spent, again, spent a lot of time traveling and working and been dealing with people and dealing with everything that goes into travel. Just the enjoyment people find in it. Um, I could be ornery, grumpy, tired, but when someone walks in the booth and just shares a story about what they like about fly fishing or what they like about TFO, you know, it's hard to not smile and just be happy. Um, again, it's, it's everyone's leisure time and leisure money. This is what they want to do. This is what makes them happy. I'm here to just try to help facilitate that. So definitely, definitely makes me happy that people enjoy it and are into it. And as you spend time doing this, you get to know people, right? Even if they're just a normal customer that fishes every, you know, every time, a couple times a year, they're into it. They love the sport. They're fired up about it, fired up about the product. Yeah. uh, Makes it worthwhile. Yeah. Also too, I would say, you know, you guys have one of the, uh, more active booths at the trade shows, whether it's, you know, the business trade shows or the consumer shows. And so it's always a good place to hang out. I'm a big fan of your, uh, of your foam flooring. It's very good on the feet. <laughs> so it's a great, yeah, well, thank you. Try to, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Try to make it a, a comfortable environment, make it a booth. People want to come into, tell their fishing story, tell me about the things they like. More importantly, there's something they don't like, something we can do better. You know, that, uh, that definitely helps too, but want it to be an open, welcoming environment and yeah, good experience for everyone. So. Yeah. And I would add all the hand sanitizer you could possibly need. 
I, uh, I'm pretty particular about that part too. <laughs> so, you know, you mentioned that you're the product category manager and that puts you kind of in charge of kind of all R and D, uh, on the fly ride side. And I think, you know, folks see your rods in shops and at trade shows, but I think most people have absolutely no idea what it takes to bring a ride to market. And I was kind of wondering if you could walk us through kind of the typical development process and literally how long it takes from the idea, you know, when you guys are sitting in the conference room, you say, I think this would be a good idea to the rod that people see in the store. Absolutely. So the, the quick answer is it takes a long time to put together. Um, I've been working on rods that we may not move to move to market till 2025, 2026 or later. Um, I typically, typically operate off of a five-year plan that I readjust, you know, reevaluate every couple months. Most rods will take a year and a half, two years, depending on what the intention is, what the goal is, who's on the project. Um, some advisors are a little bit more particular, which I love, about how they want a rod to feel, how they want it finished out. And we have, uh, a few years ago, we did some some good videos in our exclusive TFO factory about essentially that, that, that question, right? What, what does it take to make a fly rod to build a fly rod? So it's a longer process probably than most people realize. I mean, it's about solving a goal or answering a question, right? How do we solve this problem? Someone wants to cast a fly or get a fly to these, to these type of fish and how do they do it most efficiently? Of course, we're dealing with people that different casting abilities and skill. So how do we how do we do this effectively? Do this in a price point that makes sense for what they want to do. So a lot goes into it. Um, a lot more science and math than I uh, I'll admit to you than I thought was uh, was in play when I first got into this business. But as a non-engineer, there's a lot of ways you could uh, you could solve the problem or solve the you know answer the question that makes sense and you could you could turn out a good product for people so yeah and i think people you know don't maybe maybe they don't understand so you've got your own factory in korea and so when you're prototyping rods you're literally you know having conversations blanks get made they get shipped to the us uh ambassadors and field testers test them bundle up that feedback send it back to korea they make new blanks and send it back and you keep iterating that process till everybody's happy right yeah, essentially, that's uh, that's the way it goes. Um, our factory is exclusive. It's been exclusive for thirty years since uh, since we started this business. Um, so they're only making TFO fly rods there. Um, so I have almost daily conversations with BJ, who's our lead engineer. And again, I don't have a, a deep science background. He's an engineer, and he knows how to put a lot of those pieces together in a way that I do not know how to do. Um, but I take a lot of feedback from, again, a lot of our advisors, a lot of our ambassadors, our 750 plus nationwide dealers say, right, this is a tool they need to accomplish this job. How do we make it? How do we make it at a sound price with components that are going to hold up in a style that fits for our brand? Yeah. And I think it's interesting too, right? Because I mean, you know, uh, Temple Fork has really been built around the philosophy of 
producing reasonably priced, high performance gear. And, and I was kind of curious, you know, kind of two things, you know, one, you know, what challenges does that create in the design process? And also, you know, how about the marketing process? Cause you know, some people think that, you know, a $1,200 rod has to be three times better than a $400 rod. So I was kind of curious if you wanted to talk about that a little bit. Well, absolutely. That's a unfortunate misconce- misconception, right? No different than the space switch line two-handed rods conversation is a lot of that's been misconstrued to think, well, this is what you need. We're going to throw a bunch of terminology at you. Now we're going to throw a bunch of price points and money at you and, you know, uh old foot pal axiom, right? You can't just walk up to a rack and buy buy the skills, right? Can't put the money down and just expect this rod, this reel, whatever tool you're buying to perform how you think it's going to perform, right? You got to earn those skills. So a lot goes into keeping it both a quality product, but also, you know, the design process and keeping it a reasonable, reasonable tool. A um, lot of challenges there. TFO has presented some interesting challenges. You know, we've for a lot of years made some really amazing products. You know, talk about the professional series, whatever iteration, right? Professional one, professional two, go back to the BVKs, TICRs, TICRXs. So you, you know, you start to think. And one of the challenges I have, which everyone has at TFO, not just specific to me, but it's like, you know, what do you, what do you, what improvements are you making to this product, right? Are you, you're messing with a classic, whatever the classic is. Are you doing it because you want to do it? You want to look smarter or are you improving it somehow? So a lot of the fly rod design function is how are you, how are we improving this rod? What are we doing to make it a little bit better without just increasing the price, making it seem like it's better? That makes sense. How are we involving it? What are we doing to make it a better tool for the customer while trying to keep the price? sound yeah it's an interesting thing too right because i mean you know it's not just fly fishing it's everything right so like you know basketball shoes get refreshed every year and so there's this kind of trap um that you get into this kind of i I guess kind of almost a fictional product generation cycle that's really not necessarily correlated with product improvement well absolutely and yeah you get you get into a trap right i was uh reading a David Bowie quote earlier about that, right? Talking about writing music and producing characters and just coming up with things. And you get into a trap that, which has accelerated the last couple of years, right? You know, previously we could have rods in the market, eight, 10, 12 years. Sales would be consistent. Consumers would be happy. It makes sense. Nowadays, right? The attitudes have definitely shortened. You know, we've got a rod out seven years, five years. Man, that's uh also starting to drop and attitudes have shifted and again it's not all about sales but you know the the attention focus right has all of a sudden changed and you know you see companies that are doing they're turning over odds in three years and while i understand that and that makes sense in terms of sales but you're kind of sticking your dealers and your consumers with something if every three years you're coming out with something new so definitely a, a line to tell and something you have to be aware of and you know, again, I say I have a five-year production plan that changes every couple months because you don't know. Components could change. Attitudes could change. There could be some new technique, you know. There could be something else in the high-stick UNF market that comes up that, man, we're not making this route. we got to look into this market. 
So there's a lot that, uh, that a lot that changes, and unfortunately, that it takes a while to put everything you know in front of the customer and have all the other assets together. So a little bit more developed process than than probably most folks uh, realize. Yeah. But, you know, it's kind of cool, right? Uh, speaking about uh, new rods, you've got two uh, that are coming out here pretty soon, the Blitz and the Signature 3. And I thought it'd be kind of cool, you know, we can start with the Blitz. If you want to kind of tell us a little bit about the rod and kind of the fishing problem, because, you, you know, like you were saying, you like to kind of find a, a problem or an improvement you can make and not just turn stuff. You know, what was the fishing problem you were trying to solve with the rod? So the theory, the idea behind the Blitz was, a lot of people fish, fish sinking lines, intermediate lines, sink tip lines, big heavy things. What's a rod that's going to better sustain that load, be a little bit more efficient casting tool? A lot of rods, right, gone really fast, really stiff, and that's not always the best tool to unroll the fly line, deliver the fly. So this rod sits in what we'd call a unique spot in our saltwater-specific rod lineup that where the Axiom 2X, a little bit faster and stiffer. So if you're carrying a floating line at distance, got some distance shots, maybe a better tool for you. The Blitz series, a little bit better suited for the heavy line applications, right? Um, talking to my ambassador, Joe Maz, he was like, well, this is a fishing rod, not a casting rod. While it casts beautifully, it's still, uh, still designed and engineered to deliver a big heavy line and a big fly a little bit more efficiently got some other finish out things that are a little bit different some uh improved guides and trying to update the uh, the look and the feel of some of our saltwater specific fly rods so yeah got it and so to solve that sinking line problem because i don't fish sinking lines a lot and when i do it drives me nuts right <laughs> so mm -hmm. um if from a design perspective does that mean that you're making a rod that's kind of moving away from a fast to a more of a medium action but it's probably got a little bit more backbone kind of deeper down towards the butt. Is that kind of how you work on that sinking line, large fly problem? So yes and no, right? Remember, keep in mind, action is different than stiffness or softness. And that's one of those, another, another one of those wonderful fishing related things that kind of gets misconstrued. And, you know, you'll go back and forth from the fly fishing, in the conventional world and how they describe a fast action or a heavy action, all those things, right? Think of action where the rod bends, stiffness, softness, it's resistance of bending. So while this rod is a fast action, it's kind of got more of a middle or intermediate level of stiffness. So it's got plenty of power in the butt, but when you go to pick up a big heavy sinking line, an intermediate line, and a big fly, you can sustain that load a little bit easier than if you had a very fast and very stiff rod, right? Or a slower, softer rod. So a lot of terminology there, but an important distinction that consumers hopefully are starting to starting to get and understand that there is a difference. Unfortunately, the term fast action gets thrown around and doesn't necessarily do a lot of rods, not just TFO rods, but a lot of rods, you know, kind of an injustice. So there's again, a different tool for a different job. And that's what we're trying to trying to share with everyone here with the Blitz series. Yeah. And it's neat too, right? Because when you, um, you know, have more of a, a value pricing performance paradigm, you actually enter a position where like you could conceivably buy two or three rods for the price of one rod. Right. And, uh, it gives you, it's almost like uh, buying a custom pitching wedge set. Yeah. And, and hopefully that, uh, eliminates a little bit of the barrier to entry. You know, that was always, uh, always the motto. 
You don't have to spend this amount of money to get into the sport. Yeah. You could be, you know, be a little bit more price focused. And then as you delve into it, you get a little bit more specific. You figure out what you want, what you like, the type of rod, which no different than a, a golf club. I mean, it's personal preference. And I, I don't know how many calls and emails I take and answer a day that people want, well, what's your favorite rod? What do you like about this? What do you like about that? Well, you really have to pick the thing up and cast it. You know, it's not a, there's no silver bullet here. You got it's not an easy sales pitch all the time, but I mean that's that's how this type of type of world operates. So, yeah, uh, that's pretty neat. Yeah, and it's funny you take the leftover money, you take the leftover money, and you get casting lessons and a little bit of money for beer and bourbon, right? There you go. Go uh, go to your local shop, get some casting lessons, and understand that your casting is going to evolve. You know, I talk about picking up a fly rod at eight years old. I promise you, at thirty four, my casting's evolved. I don't know how many dozens of times and it probably evolved just this spring sitting there watching people and casting at shows. And I mean, it's, it's not something that's just going to stick with you. You're going to, you're going to evolve and adapt and rods are going to change and pick up the rod and cast it yourself and don't necessarily listen to, to what you're being told. Right. But yeah, for sure. I know lefty always did such a good job of kind of, you know, letting people know that, you know, different people with different body types and different, um, physical abilities had to cast the fly ride differently. No, absolutely. And he was a, he was a great example and great mentor when it came, when it comes to that type of thought, when it came to that type of thought, it was, you know, there's different ways to do this just because you're being told this one way, there's no one way to do it. Someone tells you there's only one way to do things. You might want to question it, you know, I'm sure some local police might beg to differ on that in terms of speed limits and other things around here, but there's different ways to operate it, right? It's a tool. There's a different way to swing a hammer. There's a different way to do other things. So don't let, you know, what you're being told or what you think is the only way to do it derail you from figuring out your own route. Yeah, for sure. And tell me a little bit about your signature three. So signature three is going to be an evolution of our two piece rods. Um, I know it's not very common these days, but two-piece rods still hold a special place in a lot of anglers' hearts, and it's a really efficient rod. So it'll be a two-weight through a 10-weight series, um, everything from some small creek fishing to the salmon steelhead folks or some of the uh, the boat rod anglers that are just looking for a little bit easier way to uh, to transport a rod. Um, again, evolution of a existing two-piece series, but trying to try to trim things down and make the SKUs and the models a little bit uh, easier for dealers and consumers to understand, but keep a really strong price point that fits in the market and deliver a, a good product and at a sound price. So, yeah. So just to let folks know kind of the performance um, differences between say a three and a four piece rod and a two piece rod. I mean, I think people understand you break them down there longer and, you know, if you don't have to break them down or you're driving to, to fish, you know, size is not a big deal, but it definitely has some design and performance uh, things you have to think about too, right? Yeah. If you, and it, again, it's a, it's a function of travel. Um, pretty lucky these days, the materials we get to work with. Um, what was a two or three piece rod 10, 15 years ago is negligible now. Um, you wouldn't notice the difference. There'd be no really weight difference no performance difference. Um, so what graphite, what carbon fiber has done in the last couple of years has been 
absolutely wonderful. Some wonderful materials to work with. So really no difference. It's just a just a convenience factor for anglers. Um, machining, you know, our, how we operate our mandrels and how almost everybody operates mandrels, right? How they build and design their mandrels. I mean, there's no no real difference from a two-piece to a four-piece. It's just something that's kind of, I don't want to say specialized, but it fits certain markets, fits certain anglers and guides and boats and different things a little bit differently than it used to. But performance-wise, the materials are so great these days across the board that there's really no difference. Just preference. Yeah, got it. And so when can folks expect to see these rides at their TFO dealer? So new rods will be out the end of June. Um, Aptex, which is the European Fishing Tackle Trade Expo, uh, we'll, we always release our new products there, which will be June 21st as the public launch of both the Blitz and the Signature 3. Um, and then dealers will be able to start ordering soon after that. We'll have uh, ICAST, which is the International Tackle Convention in Orlando in July, which will have a lot of dealers there and a lot of interest and our program starts in uh, starts in early fall so september october so those routes will be out uh, hopefully by the end of the june and social media wise they should be uh, seeing a few uh, few posts and some snippets here in the next couple of days yeah, there you go and of course in your abundant uh, spare time uh, you're a, uh, you're a relatively yeah. newly elected board member to afta um, for folks that don't know what AFTA is, you want to tell them a little bit about it and kind of what it does to support our industry? Absolutely. So, yes, in all my first time, um, I'm on three boards, AFTA, which is the American Fly Fishing Trade Association, which their goal is to support manufacturer, retailers, guide operations, lot of lodge operations in the fly fishing industry. Um, one of their bigger functions, one of their bigger presentations, if you will, is what formerly was called IFTD, which is now called the Confluence, which is our our trade show for the fly fishing industry. Goal being to bring all these interests together and provide a financially beneficial situation for them. Retailers can come in, have special ordering, special buying with manufacturers, be part of the community. So very community focused. Um, a lot of transitions, a lot of changes are going on within AFTA. Positive changes. Elected a lot of people to the board. Relatively new president. So a lot of good things going on. Um, but it's about, again, it's about making it financially beneficial for its members. Um, there are some other incentives for guys and other, uh, other folks like that. But keeping the community attitude strong, but backing it up with some financially beneficial situations for everyone so yeah it's interesting right i mean I, i've been several years and i know you know lucas and ken and everybody after they've been working really hard because you know the industry has changed so much in the last 10 or 15 years and so i think the fundamental idea is you can't keep the trade show experience the same either and so i think they've um they've really been working hard to come up with a kind of a new model that you know to your point covers as many bases as possible um, to make it as uh, industry inclusive and as profitable for dealers and everybody else too. Well, absolutely, and, it, and it's an evolving, you know, it's an evolving, it's a moving target, and it'll continue to move. Ken, Lucas, they've done a lot to 
not not you know necessarily move away from the trade show floor buying program, but incorporate it community aspect, incorporate an outdoor environment. So there's some demo opportunities. There's a lot that a lot that is changing, and you know it's a lot that still has to be done. But there's a lot of people that are focused and committed to doing it, and understand the realities of it. You know you see how other trade organizations evolve, ASA essentially ICAST and EFTA or FTEX, right? The European Fishing Organization. That's not an easy prospect. There's a lot to be done and there's a lot of moving parts, but we're moving in a good direction. Again, trying to get the message out that this is why EFTA exists. This is what it does for the members. This is how participating in a trade show, not calling it a trade show, but for lack of better articulation, this is what can benefit a manufacturer, a retailer, a guide or a lodge operation. So, yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned you were on several boards. You want to kind of let folks know kind of what you do on the board and also kind of what you want to accomplish during your tenure on the board at AFTA. Sure. So, presently, the chair of the show and summit committee. So, we are responsible for the fall show, uh, which is the confluence now, formerly IFTD, and the spring gathering, which is a little bit more industry focused. Um, it revolved originally around the Jim Range National Casting Call, which had a very important and critical role in terms of conservation um, and uh, what we call the Hill Walk, right? So meeting with congressmen and congresswomen in Washington, D.C. I'm also a member of the membership committee and most recently the finance committee. So the people that uh, the hold the purse springs. Um, my goals are kind of immaterial, but the focus, at least I entered with, is how do we make the trade component beneficial to manufacturers of various sizes? Um, with my experience at TFO, is not every company is a massive $100 million, $300 million organization, right? There's a lot of companies in the fly fishing space that are mid-range to smaller and deserve a voice and deserve to be involved. and they need to uh, have an opportunity to participate and have a have a show booth and whatever level of program or preseason buying they're at. Let them be involved, and it shouldn't be an organization just run by uh, run by the big players. So, a lot of individual goals, but more importantly, getting other companies involved. And if a physical presence at a show doesn't necessarily fit a company, there's other ways to support it and be you know and participate but also get your name out there get dealer attention so a lot relative to the show committee um membership wise finance wise it's how do we grow the membership base in a meaningful way what are we providing our members and is this a, a reasonable expense for a manufacturer for a retailer for a guide for a uh, lodge operation so a lot that a lot that goes into that but the tide is turning there, and it's again, it's about making it meaning, meaningful for the members and the companies and the guides that put their money forward, and what are we doing for them, and how are we articulating that message? So, yeah, uh, got it. And uh, before I let you go, I, you know, I we we decided we weren't going to talk about lacrosse, but uh, I just wanted to check and see oh. if there, <laughs> we can if you want to. Um, but I wanted to check and see if there's anything else you wanted to share with our listeners. 
Uh, well, outside of lacrosse and the MCLA championships that were just down here in uh, the Hill Country in Texas, I guess uh, to catch up there. Oh, a lot of new product coming from TFO. Um, as we discussed, June will be a end of June and in Jul- July will be a good, uh, good, exciting year. Again, evolving a lot of things and making very thoughtful, conscious decisions on how we evolve certain products and and move things forward. Um, have an exciting book project coming up. That's kind of fun. Um, going to work with a close friend of mine that's been in the industry for a number of years and a book focused on fishing pressured waters in the West. So I've gotten a lot of good, uh, good advice from Jason Randall and a number of other uh, Stackpole published authors. So that'll be uh, coming down the pipe here, hopefully in the next couple months. Uh, very, very cool. We'll be on the lookout for that. You'll have to come back and tell us about it. Uh, we can talk book stuff. Um, but, uh, and before I let you go, you know, why don't you let folks know kind of the best way to get in touch with you and folks at TFO and to kind of keep up with your adventures and TFO's adventures on and off the water? Well, absolutely. So best way to reach TFO is just through our Instagram, through our Facebook, tforods.com is the website. I've got a personal page, uh, Swing 4, which is the number, then Steel. Um, unfortunately, I haven't caught a lot of Steelhead recently, so you'll have to excuse that part of it. But www.tforods.com is probably the best uh, best way to keep an eye on what's going on in terms of rod and real design and what we've got coming down the pipe here. Uh, well, there you go. Well, Nick, I appreciate you taking a little bit of time out of your eating to talk to me. Well, absolutely. Thank you very much. You bet. Have a great one. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcast of your choice. Tight lines, everybody. Mm-hmm.